This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am flattered they elevated me to having a JD, which is a law degree, but I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to all rise. So here we are, podcast two, and we're going to continue with you, Diane, explaining to people like me and everyone listening what it's really like in a courtroom in the courthouse. And we thought we'd ask a question about who are these people? We all know who the judge is. We can see him or her. But who are the rest of the people in general that we're going to meet up with? Yes, the judge is in the black robe. Yep. <laughs> are you going to ask me if he's wearing pants under the robe? I don't know. That's <laughs> possible for a future podcast. I think a lot of listeners might be curious. No. I understand. Of course we know. And you know what? It's kind of a bummer they don't wear wigs. Like I look in England and they're wearing a wig. Wouldn't that be great fun? Always thought that was cool. Always thought that was really, really cool, especially for the bald uh, attorneys, barristers. But another thing is um, they don't, I've never seen in 30 years one use a gavel. I feel like it's a ripped deal. I want to see them go case closed. Now, wait a minute. Stop right there. Are you kidding? There's no gavel in your, that's amazing. One, and it's probably three and a half feet long. And Judge Peter Laureate had it. Wonderful man. He's now retired, but great guy. He had one. And I think maybe, I just think like a relative or a son made it in Woodshop. He used to carry it around. It looked like what Bam Bam had on the Flintstones. <laughs> and he'd keep it pr- prominently in front of him on the bench. And it was it was great. But oh, I've never man. seen a gavel besides that. That's like a conductor who doesn't use a wand, just uses his exactly. hands. I'm like, this is a ripped deal. Where's the gavel? But anyway. Well, besides the judge who we've now talked about and uh, given all kinds of legend to, people have seen enough on TV to know there's an attorney and there's somebody on the other side. But tell me more about this. Break well, it down. You, the judge naturally is a little bit elevated on the bench and underneath you'll see the clerk. And, you know, Jervis will ask after a trial, what did that guy do? He just sat there. But he absolutely has a pivotal role. He administers the oath of every witness he habes in the criminals. That's just a fancy word for he summons the criminals in on paper from the jail. He will call the case. He'll manage the case. He is in custody of all the trial exhibits during the trial. And, you know, you'll see them at lunchtime. They're going to lunch. They'll take a big package of cocaine and put it inside their suit jacket. They're bringing it upstairs to lock it up for the hour because they can't leave it unattended. Mm-hmm. They have, to, you know, they'll have a gun in their hand. They'll have to, huh. you know, they're very important. Indeed. Now, uh, we also mentioned earlier in a previous show uh, the bailiffs, but we call them court officers here. Yes, they're they do. critical. Yes. And then there's you, people like yourself. Yes. Others that you'll see, of course, would be witnesses, jurors. And yeah. what about media? media? What about media? Absolutely. The way they do the media, in state court, they allow them. In federal court, they do not. But in, in, I mean, they can go in, but they can't bring their camera. So what happens, and it really works out nicely, is they will approach the court prior to the proceeding and say, we, we're the media. We would like to run a camera in here. The judge will allow one, and that, per, say it's Channel 5 for that day. Channel 5 will share the feed with everybody. I see. You know, makes it easier. And speaking of courtroom proceedings, are most of them allowing television these days or few? Yes, a lot of it doesn't warrant that, you know. Right. 
Like they were there for New England Patriot tight end Aaron Hernandez, and they were anticipating a big overflow. So what they do is they'll be in an empty courtroom and they will have a feed into that courtroom for spectators with a huge TV. You mentioned the crowd. Okay, speaking of crowds, we talked about people, the public, certainly allowed into our public courtrooms. Is there a particular method if, if it's a popular, I say popular, if it's a if it's an infamous case, are people sectioned off and is it a lottery? I mean, how do people get in generally? Well, first come, first serve. Okay. But naturally, you know, it's funny. Witnesses that are involved in a trial are not allowed into the courtroom except for to trial. In certain instances, after they tr- they um, give their testimony, they may be allowed to watch the balance of the case, depending. The judge will make that decision. The judge is an umpire, calls the strikes. Mm-hmm. They, they administer the law. But, you know, it's funny about a judge. A lot of times people will, citizens will give a bad, why did the judge let him go? But, you know, the judge has a lot of leeway. But from what I see... The judge has to go by the mass sentencing guidelines. So if people are upset at lenient sentences, go to the legislature because they're the ones that impose this. And, you know, there's many things. Age, if you already have a record versus you have no record. Um, There's a lot of things. Probation, there'll be doctors that will opine. There's many things that go into deciding what sentence someone will serve. We're talking about personnel. Obviously, the district attorneys are the ones that bring the case, the people's case, to the courthouse. And we, we know what the term sort of means, but are these, for the most part, elected officials, DAs? Well, you know, it's funny. In most people that I talk to don't even know who their DA is in their county. There's one per county, and they're an elected official. Now, naturally, all they do simply is decide who's going to be prosecuted, and they bring the case. Now, they're one person. They can't be in every courtroom at once. So they have assistance. And I think in the in Suffolk County, there may be like 85 or 100 of them. And they they will, you know, do the cases. They're appointed by whoever the DA is who's elected. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hired. They get hired. They're all professionals naturally. Right. They're lawyers. Right. But, you know, I'll tell you something. They work very hard and they don't get a lot of money to start. Those junior, you know, DAs, it's public record. You could look it up. They don't get paid big bucks. I want to talk with you about your work over the years and some of the instinctive moments that occur when you see a particular law firm gathering in the lobby you might know, oh, I think I know what's coming today on the docket. Is that the way it works? In the lobby of the building. You can see like a kid and he looks really pensive and he's his his pants are too long and you know you can tell he never wears a suit. You can tell he's a defendant. He dressed up, he probably borrowed it from his brother. And like, you know, when I see certain it's funny, when you see these big law firms come into Suffolk County, they are like a platoon. They've got like a van with the name of the you know, firm on the side of the thing. They've got assistance. They've got this. They've got that. They bring in like a whole world into the courtroom, a whole Mm. group. It's an army. So let's talk about how it differs from, let's say, law and order that people are pretty familiar with. The typical trial, a court like yours in Suffolk, say. It is measured in weeks and months. Superior court trials are elongated. They're protracted. Trust me when I tell you. District court, one or two days, and that's the end of it. Not unlike a television show that wraps up in 48 minutes with commercials. Yeah. No, I, 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 I certainly understand that. I think our listeners do as well. Um, there's a question here that you wanted me to ask. The three most dreaded sounds to a court reporter's ears. She's laughing. 
hysterically at that because you wrote the question. So I don't have any idea what you're going to say. Every time the door of the courtroom opens or closes, every time an individual will cough, it's like you lose the word. And, you know, we other court reporters and I've had this conversation and then we'll say, did he say did or didn't? I mean, that's pivotal. And, you know, you have to pick your battles like you have to know some judges get really mad if you ask have something repeated and some are wonderful with it. You know, so you have to just hope a lot of times in the next question or two, it becomes evident what was said. We were talking previously that uh, automation has come into play, and it seems like it's really a, a human being is needed for this job because interpreting some of the stuff that's going on is what you're talking about. Can a computer, can a machine do that? Well, you know, I've, I've, I'm familiar with the, the system. We, it, well, it's out of Australia, and it's called FTR, for the record. Mm-hmm. Court reporters refer it to fuck the record. Excuse the, you know. but It's that's okay. It's your podcast. You can say that. And that. But what happens is you're supposed to, first of all, they they the clerks are incredibly busy, and the clerks are supposed to be responsible for the record now. With all respect to them, they don't know beans about the record. How should they? How could they? And there needs to be one human being, in my opinion, dedicated to the record. These are life felonies. People could go away for a long time. And it's just it's crazy. Now, to me, automation, when a judge wants to hear what was said, say they're sitting in Boston and they want to hear what was said in Worcester pertinent to our case. Maybe there's a reason why they want to hear there's another motion being in another county might be a companion case. They can hit a button. And it's terrific. They can hear what was said in a few counties away the same day. That's the good part of it. But for a verbatim record, it's the pits. Well, nothing beats the human ear and uh, human interpretation, I suppose, if you're a professional. You know, I'm 30 years into this. I have strung things together. It takes my all. And other court reporters will say, how can a machine know? It challenges me after all these years to put together that transcript. How does a machine do it? When I've been sitting there for decades, I get it. But I'll tell you, sometimes it's tough. It's mm, it's too many things that could go wrong. Yeah, it, it it's the justice system is 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 a people system. It's it's involving human beings who are flawed, and it, it's very tricky. And we'll be talking more about that, I'm sure. You said that there are many surprising things that you've learned and picked up along the way. Uh, some about defendants, some about judges, some about lawyers. What can you tell us about judges that surprised you? Well, to me, well, the thing that got me the most was. I, I don't mean this as a bad thing about judges, but you can become a judge. If you have a law degree, you can become a judge without ever having tried a case in your life. That just blew my mind. There was another thing that I look at. Say a a lawyer, all his life, he does medical malpractice cases. He becomes a judge. A week later, he's hearing a case on construction. To me, it's like, When you go to a doctor, if you have a foot ailment, you go to a podiatrist. You have a heart ailment, you go to a cardiologist. How can a judge know everything? Mm. They can't. Mm -hmm. And if they've been a criminal lawyer their whole life and now they're in civil, I mean, a lot of them rise to the occasion. They're brilliant and they, you know, they look up the law and they do well. But I just think it's kind of crazy. You were mentioning that uh, when judges are outside of the courtroom, the courthouse, many of them have this sort of rock star status, this 
aura about them and certain people fawn at them. I mean, and it's a sign of respect to be a judge, no question. But what's your take on that? I wholeheartedly respect judges. Um, like one thing, one day we were going out to a view and that's, I guess, a podcast for another day. But that's when everybody gets in a bus and we go to the scene of the murder. But, um, you know, the, the radio came, the radio broadcast came that we were ready to go on the bus and the judge said, come with me. And I love that because I get to take the judge's elevator. It comes right away and it doesn't <laughs> stop at all. The, it's great. So yeah. he's like, come with me. Now, they anticipated this judge was going to exit the building, go on the bus. I was with him. Everyone was bowing, opening the door. You're on it, you're on it. And I'm thinking, by the time I got to the bus, I'm like, wow, it's like it's rock a rock star status. It certainly is. Uh, you know, that brings to mind the question about being in a courtroom, being feet away from someone who is ultimately convicted of taking a life. To me, that is mind-blowing to think that this person who is convicted in a court of law, all evidence points to it, actually pulled a trigger or strangled or stabbed someone. What is that like for you? In Suffolk County, it's a huge, huge courtroom and they're nowhere near me. You know, you look at them with wonder, you're like, wow, you know, but I've been in other smaller courtrooms and there have been instances over the years, not many, but they sit the, the, person that's been convicted of murder down they're there for maybe years later they're there for another another hearing regarding their case and i've chatted with them and you know it got me to thinking like people are complicated and 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 i've actually liked some murderers i've spoken to i mm. mean platonically i don't know them well i wouldn't like them if i was in a room and they're sticking a knife in me but oh, it's like I don't know. Like they're I not they're not the ogres and the evil villains you see in the movies necessarily. They could be the, the guy next door is what you're saying. Well, this afternoon after this podcast, if you're at McDonald's waiting for a Big Mac, the guy behind you could be. I mean, I'm telling you, ordinary, ordinary looking, acting, just crazy. It is. It, 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 that's why when we have an opportunity to talk with people like you and get an insight into what these kinds of things are happening. It, it's fascinating in every respect. There are also moments, and I know you'll cover these in future episodes, that are just emotionally draining and heartbreaking. Well, I think one of the worst ones is post-conviction. You know, they barely ever put um, anyone, they never have a sentencing the day of the conviction. You know, they'll stay it for a few, what they call stay. They just move it out. So say on October 1st, you're convicted of murder. You may, you come back to the court maybe a month later and there's a whole proceeding called a sentencing hearing. Right. Might go on for an hour and a half. And they do what's called witness, witness statements. Anyone affected can take the stand and just speak. And I'll tell you, those are tear jerkers. I've seen mothers of murder victims look their child's murderer in the eye and forgive them. You don't forget a moment like that. In fact, there was a story uh, maybe eight, ten years ago about a little girl who was, I think, struck down by a bullet and she forgave the, the assailant and she was, you know, in a wheelchair. She couldn't use her legs anymore. I mean, those things are, you never forget those things is what I'm assuming. You know, I had one a few years back and it was awful. It was, we never, I never found out because sometimes you don't find out and there's no one to ask, but. In broad daylight, a young man was shot to death in a parking lot of a condo complex, kind of near Northeastern University. Come to find out, the person that shot him was given $10,000 to go kill 
his kid. The problem was he got the wrong kid. This was just an innocent kid getting out of a car and the the murderer misread his face, mm. thought it was him, but it wasn't and killed mm. him. So we, you know, then he, he was on, he was on camera throwing the gun in a dumpster and a guy heard the commotion and looked and the dumpster had just been emptied out by the garbage company. So it went ba-boom and he's like, oh my God. So you, they, the police put together all these, like, you know, ca- from cameras on the side of buildings. A minute after he committed this murder, he is on the sidewalk at Northeastern with all these college students, like blending in all these young, cute kids with like backpacks. And, and he's standing there. He's just killed someone like 90 seconds earlier. And he's waiting to cross. His, and we're looking at the film going, are you kidding me? But um, I do digress. But anyway, that father of that kid that was killed after the sentencing hearing, I was at the elevator and he approached me. And it was so unusual. And, and I, he was very nice. And he put his hand out. He said, I want to thank you. And I'm like, for what? He's like, for working on my son's case. Then he had a young man with him. He said, this is my only son left. I lost another son mm. to gun violence. It was, he was the nicest man. I was just like, it, it, it's, that has stayed with me for a long time. I don't see how it couldn't. And, and another thing, too, it, the old expression, revolving door. I mean, you probably have gotten to know families who have come through the system because sadly there are a lot of repeat offenders and there are a lot of people who, who follow the, the teams, shall we say, into, into bad stuff. Well, I've worked so long that sometimes I look up on the wall and I see an oil painting of a deceased judge. And I'm like, oh, my God, I worked with him. I mean, that's how. So I've been there long enough that. Years later, I'll see a defendant come back and I'm like, I remember him. I had him 15 years Mm. ago. I mean, yeah. You have an interesting, Diana's an interesting habit when you're driving past a a prison somewhere. Would you share that with us? Occasionally you'll drive by like MCI Concord, Shirley. I believe it or not, I have a relative up that way. So I do have to pass Shirley to get to her house. And I go by Wapo Norfolk Prison. I can name a litany of people that I have known through the court. I can name them all. I'm like, I wonder how they're doing. They're on the other side of that mm-hmm. wallet. It, you never forget any of the murder cases you're on. Do you ever worry about safety in a job like this? Not working there, but I think my sense of safety in general is down the toilet. It's gone. Um, someone will like come into the driveway to just turn around. I'm taking their number plate. You should see me. I'm, when I come out of a mall and it's dark, I wait till there's a group of people and I walk with that crowd to the car. I mean, my sister has said to my mother, Diane's paranoid, but if it can be done, it will be done. I've heard it. all. I hear a noise at night. I think, oh, my God, I'm mm-hmm. getting home in bed. It's terrible. Well, you're surrounded in your day to day work life by people at least accused of doing heinous things. And it, it sort of weighs on you as you're doing it, I'm sure. Um, there are a couple of other things that we wanted to cover in one of these initial podcasts. One of them is the fact that you must have an understanding of people more than most because you see the best and the worst in people. What is a major takeaway for you in all the work you've done seeing people under pressure? What, what can you tell us has been one of the major takeaways? You mean the people that are prosecuting the case and defending it or the... Um, just in general, I mean, I, I thought I read somewhere that you reflect occasionally on the fact that we all are human, we all make mistakes, and there are times when you make a big one and you're facing yes. certain big um, consequences. I can, you know, 
people sometimes they're very smug. They're like, ooh, criminals. Can I, I'm here to tell you, no one is immune. You can find yourself. We used to, I used to work with a judge and he used to call the defense seat. He'd say, you never want to find yourself on the south side of the V. I'm like, what is he talking about? Mm. And think about it. Commonwealth versus John Smith. Commonwealth versus uh, the v. the v. If you're on the south side of the V, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And it can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter if you're educated, uneducated, rich. The stuff that can happen. Who anticipated COVID? You don't know what's around the corner in life. You could find yourself in trouble. Experience is such a great teacher. Before we ask you the big wrap-up question on this podcast, give a, a little promo for folks as to what you want to do with this new venture, because there's a lot of exciting storytelling that's based on your experience. But please tell me what's to come. Well, I am I'm going to outline and talk about specific murder cases I've been on. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be good. And, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been on, like, there's one, for instance, this morning, I was transcribing something, and there's so many cases that never see the light of day, no one knows, it just happens, it's over, and it's gone. And believe me, most of what goes on never makes the papers. People, I was oblivious before I worked there of just what goes on, but I just had a thing. Um, there was two 15-year-olds and a 16-year-old, and they were hanging around with three guys who they said were their boyfriends and the boyfriends told them that they had to join their gang and if they didn't they were going to be beaten but they had a choice to to be in in you know what is it called kind of like a hazing process initiated or whatever yeah yes the girls could either be beaten vaginal sexual intercourse or perform oral sex on a member of the gang so They cried. They said they didn't want to do it. And they were raped, all three of them. Mm. But the problem was the three kids, they were very young in their 20s, the the three gentlemen. They pled guilty and the Commonwealth took their plea because the girls reneged and said it was consensual. Then the girls retracted it and said that they were really intimidated. So it was a big mess. The Commonwealth took the pleas. And I mean, that stuff like that every day you see in that courthouse. I think it's going to be enlightening for people to hear it from you because you cover every aspect of a case. So the final question on this podcast, Diane, is a loaded one, but I'll give you the, the floor. This is your podcast. What changes would you like to see specifically in the Massachusetts court system if you could wave the wand? Wave the wand. Um, I think that now, I think that judges that have mandatory retirement in Massachusetts at 70 years of age, it should bump up to 72. There is something that they do. It's called a recall and judges can be asked to come back for two years. But I think that the way like with longevity and judges, some of them don't want to retire at 70 and they're wonderful and they should stay on. I think that jurors that are in college and jurors that are expecting babies shouldn't have to serve. There's plenty of time for them to come back and do it. I think that should be changed. I think the juror questionnaire, the way it is, it's all, it needs to be more clear. People misread the questions. People forget to answer questions. And, and when we pick a jury, it adds hours on to picking a jury because we have to stop and have them fill out the form or ask them questions. You, you also note that drinking water would be nice. We talked about that previously. <laughs> Instead of the babla, right? 
Exactly. Wow. There's so much here that's uh, insightful. And uh, I, I think this podcast is, is one of those that's going to be a regular haunt for a lot of people uh, who are interested in the criminal justice system, but also the human side. Thank you, Diane, for your insight. It's really, really valuable. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.